there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 8, 11. on staff with us almost about three years ago. We extended him an offer to come on staff. He was graduating Southern Seminary and everything. We, but the offer we extended to him was a week before COVID shut everything down. And so uh, he, uh, in a period of a few months, uh, got uh, graduated, got married, moved cross country, and then started doing youth group on Zoom. Can't even imagine like that, uh, that uh, whole transition time for him. And so anyways, um, but I'm glad he had a chance to come and be part of Worship here. He told me he was really blessed, really loved being with you last week. Uh, and I've been here my second, my second time now. It's really, like, you guys are a really loving congregation, really welcoming. It's, I love that the, the service doesn't feel like a performance. It feels like family gathering to worship. And it's a pretty amazing thing to just be part of and uh, to be here worshiping with you all. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning and uh, looking at the story of uh, Gabriel announcing the birth of Jesus to Joseph, and uh, so I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 18, and uh, we'll be uh, in that section of scripture this morning, uh, up to verse 25, and I, I love the Christmas story and how it can highlight two things that are very unique, but highlight them simultaneously. Uh, the first thing it highlights is that the majority of the people living at the time of the birth of Jesus had no idea what was going on. They had no clue what God was doing in their midst. Uh, in fact, they were expecting someone very different than Jesus. They were expecting uh, God to raise up a king among them, a king that would lead them uh, in a, a fight against Rome, that would restore to them their freedom. They wanted someone that was gonna be a political liberator to them. 
And that was a pattern that they had seen before in their history with uh, people during the times between the Testaments with uh, Judas Maccabees and uh, other people in their history that would lead that, that led them in uh, political revival. And so they wanted a, a promised Messiah who would free and restore the throne of David. And so that was happening during the time of Jesus. People were longing for that Messiah to come, that political leader to come. But at the same time, the Christmas story highlights to us these different snapshots of people who understood what God was doing. These people that God had revealed to them what he was doing. We get these glimpses of people who recognize what God was doing with Jesus and how they're moved to awe and wonder in the Christmas story. And so what's the difference between people like Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph and the shepherds and Anna and Simeon and the wise men is that they were filled with awe and wonder of what God was doing and were therefore able to see the gift of Jesus for what it really was, what it is today for us. God's work to save the lost and lonely, God's work to restore people who were distant from him because of sin and death, to restore relationship, to reconcile them. And so Jesus came as good news. Jesus came as good news with great joy for all the world God meeting our deepest need for a redeemer who would undo the effect of sin, death, and evil in the world as a savior, expressing God's heart for us to be restored to him in faith. And so as, as we walk through Christmas story, the main characters are filled with awe and wonder in the Christmas story, while the masses of people around them just missed it. They didn't see it. Some didn't have hearts to see, some didn't hear the message. But what we see is that they're filled with great faith, and they meet these portraits of faith throughout the Christmas story. And so you heard Elliot last week talk about the faith of the shepherds. The first ones to celebrate the birth of Jesus, God revealing the good news for all people that salvation's arrived for them. In this unexpected package, God the Son taking on human flesh, joining himself to humanity, fully God, fully human, in the person of Jesus Christ. And then God calls ordinary people to embrace this miracle, the shepherds. And it's amazing to see these stories go week after week after week after week in the Christmas story as you unpack the stories in uh, this time of year in Advent. And I want us to see this morning with the announcement to Joseph uh, an aspect of faith that is really important for us to grasp as followers of Jesus. That faith is living in dependence. It's living with dependence on God. Faith is living in a way that God is everything for us, that we are dependent on him and Joseph's often a forgotten character in the Christmas story. Uh, he's most known for what he didn't do. He did not divorce Mary. And Joseph, in the story of Scripture, uh, it gets kind of forgotten. We don't know exactly what happened to Joseph. Uh, we just know that Mary continues on through the, the life and ministry of Jesus when Joseph becomes silent and absent. Some have speculated Joseph may have died in Jesus' childhood after the scene where he's uh, teaching in the temple, and they go back and find him in the temple in, in, in Luke. Uh, but we don't know what happened to him. We don't know what happened to Joseph. He's kind of quiet. He's kind of silent. And uh, over the last few weeks, you probably have heard, um, since we're kind of in the Bay Area here, you probably heard the term Mr. Irrelevant the last few weeks, probably more often than you probably wanted to hear. But uh, if you don't know that term, Mr. Irrelevant, um, that is a term that uh, I'm a very casual football fan. I follow football on Twitter, basically. I don't have live TV. I own no gear, no jerseys, nothing. Um, back at my church, people are really into football and NASCAR for some reason. I don't know why. 
Um, but uh, Mr. Irrelevant's a term that goes back to 1976, and it's a term given for the last person taken in the NFL draft. And so what happens in the NFL draft is over three days, um, the, the, the 32 teams get a chance to select a player they could offer a contract to. And so these players have played you know, college football uh, for a number of years, and they, they get entered the draft, and uh, the Niners select such and such a person, and they get to offer them a contract. Now, what happens is as you get later into the rounds of the draft, a lot of people don't even make teams. Uh, they get cut, they get on practice teams. But going back to 1976, they gave the person who was the last person, number 262 in the draft, the, the title Mr. Irrelevant. Now, that just seems mean to me. But the most like, famous Mr. Irrelevant uh, taken last in the draft, typically before this last season, was a kicker. And kickers often aren't even drafted. They're kind of offered contracts uh, as a walk-on onto a team. And so, but what happened was a few weeks ago, the 49ers starting quarterback, got, Jimmy Garoppolo, got injured. And guess who stepped in the game? The 49ers Mr. Irrelevant, the person that was drafted last in the draft recently, Brock Purdy. And so this term came kind of onto like national consciousness because like a Mr. Irrelevant stepped into the game. And uh, I think that in the Christmas story, we treat Joseph like Mr. Irrelevant. Like he's not center stage, he's not carrying the son of God, he's just kind of in the story for a short bit of time. And again, he's known for what he didn't do. He's known for not divorcing Mary. But what we see in the Joseph story is we look at what God's called him to is he's called to an active role. He's called to be in the game. And he's, he's uniquely given uh, a picture of what God was doing through Christ uh, with that promise. We sang it earlier today that Jesus is Emmanuel. He, of all the, all the people in the scripture, the angel connects the prophecy in Isaiah that God is with us to Jesus to Joseph, and he's called to an active role in the story. He's called to an active role in that, in uh, how he's called to um, adopt God the Son into his family. And so we miss uh, this. He's called to an active faith and, and modeling dependence on God as he took on a life that would be open to scandal and hostility and ridicule. And he got to model an active part of the gospel with adoption. Uh, and just to give us some, some common language here, the, the word faith is used kind of in three ways in uh, the Christian life and in, uh, in the scripture. There's saving faith. Uh, when you turn from your sins, you repent of your sins, you turn towards God, and, and you're justified. You're made new in God's sight. You're forgiven and given righteousness from God, the righteous standing of Jesus. That's saving faith. Uh, a second way faith is used is used as the faith, uh, kind of an idea of like the teachings that are core to being a follower of Christ. Uh, we're to grow up in the faith. But a third way, and the way we're going to use it today in particular, is uh, faith is active trust, that we're living a life of faith. And we see this expressed throughout the, throughout the Christmas story as, as all these people are called to a life of active trust. And I want to see today that Christian faith is a dependent faith, one that relies on and needs God in a real and practical way. And so I want to look at three things as we move through the passage this morning. First, I want to look at how Joseph moves from being determined to being dependent. How he moves from being determined to do what is right in his own eyes to being dependent on God. And I want to look at two truths after that that the angel reveals to him. Well, one the, one the angel reveals explicitly. He tells him very truly that this God is God with us. 
And a second truth that he gets to understand in the story as he lives out his life as Joseph, uh, lives out his life as the adoptive father of Jesus. The truth of the good news of adoption. So moving from determined to dependent, and then number two, seeing that the good news of God with us, and number three, seeing the good news of adoption. So let's look at the scripture uh, with uh, this, Matthew 1, 18, and see how Joseph moves from being determined to dependent. Matthew 1, 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved, he was determined to divorce her quietly. Let's pause there for a moment. Um, Sometime before they were formally married, Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant with a child that was not his. We don't get backstory to this event at all. We do not know how Mary broke the news to him, what specifically she told him, like, this child's from God, an angel came and told me. It's like, yeah, Mary, sure. We actually don't know where Joseph was living at the time. We know Mary was in Nazareth. We don't know where Joseph lived or called home at the time. They could have had a long-distance relationship. The betrothals were not rooted in romance like our kind of marriages are typically rooted in today. Betrothals were legal arrangements in the ancient world, often worked out by parents. And so we don't know how far apart they were. Likely, Mary began to show probably at this point or brought the news to Joseph quietly before word got out. And what intensifies this is that in the ancient world, this was not socially acceptable. This was against the law of Moses. Today, there's a lot more grace for uh, kind of unwanted pregnancies or these kinds of things that happen in our world today around us. But in the ancient world, that was not the way things were, especially under the law of Moses. And so for Joseph, this was a divorceable situation. The betrothals were legal arrangements. They only ended with a legal divorce. And so this was a, a divorceable situation that could only be undone uh, for justifiable grounds. And he had justifiable grounds with this potential adultery. And he'd be righteous in the eyes of the community. And in fact, if he didn't act, he'd be seen as being culpable or at risk of public humiliation or suspicion. And so Joseph was pondering what to do. And what he decided was to settle on divorcing Mary and calling the betrothal quits. Look at verse 19. We learn three things here in verse 19. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We learn three things here. First, Joseph was a just man, meaning that he was morally righteous and tried to do his best in the eyes of the law of Moses. And he did not want to marry someone who he believed had been unfaithful to him. He also wanted to respond with mercy. He did not want to go about drawing public attention to Mary, which at minimum would humiliate her, at worst would subject her to the 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 justice aspect of the law of Moses, and it would risk public execution. The Mosaic law in the book of Numbers allowed for a quiet divorce. It allowed for you to go before a priest with a few witnesses and to have a quiet divorce, and he wanted to go that route. So second, we learn that not only was he just, but he was determined. Look at verse 19 again. He resolved. He was determined. It's a word in the Greek that means a strong desire. He strongly desired, strongly wished to go this route. And third, look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The third thing we learn is that his motive was fear. He was afraid. 
Uh, That's the same angel that appeared to Mary. Uh, He's now visiting Joseph through a dream at the right place, right time. Verse 20, he was considering these things. The Lord appears to him in a dream, angel of the Lord. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This reveals to us that Joseph, deep down, was afraid to go through with this betrothal. And it was less about what was right in the situation and more about what was safe. And so often when we hit these conflicts of faith in our Christian walk, it's often less about what's right and we're tempted to go with what's safe. To go with what's right will often put us in a place where we're dependent. And so why would he be so afraid? Well, Joseph was exposing himself to public shame. He was exposing himself to social exclusion, to rejection by marrying Mary. People would assume the worst, because people are people, right? People are sinners. We assume the worst. They would assume that he was the father. They would not believe the story that God had visited them with this miracle. And most people, again, missed out on what God was doing in the Christmas story. Most people went on with life as if nothing happened or doubted that God would take on creation to bring about salvation. Only a handful of people were filled with awe and wonder at what God had done. So Joseph would need to come to a place, get this, where he cared more about what the Lord thought than what the people around him thought. How great would it be to be in that place where you cared more about what the Lord thought than what people around you thought, what society thought? This is a very real pressure that we face. We're tempted to compromise what the Bible teaches, often to avoid hostility or to avoid shame. We're tempted to compromise what the Bible teaches to fit in. And so we see perspectives on sexuality or biblical social justice or our care for the vulnerable like the unborn. All these things are areas we're tempted to compromise in order to fit in when we're faced with public pressure or opinion. And so Joseph needed to come to a place where he'd care more about what God thought than the people around him. And to be a follower of God, Joseph would need to embrace also Mary's vulnerability as his own. He would need to take on Mary's weakness as his own. He would need to trust and depend on God for what would come next. Mary was at risk of public shame. Being a single teenage mom in the ancient world, her life moving forward would be very, very difficult. A safe situation for Joseph would be to divorce her and to preserve his own reputation, to respond to what God's calling him to do. He would have to take on Mary's weakness as his own, his vulnerability as his own. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, said, to love at all is to be vulnerable, because when you love, you experience risk. And, And he's experiencing risk in order to be faithful to God and faithful to Mary. And as the story progresses, we see this fear-based determination just start to melt like butter in the story. He goes from being hard-hearted to something that can be shaped. He goes from being determined, determined to hold on to his public image of righteousness and to do what he thought was right and to take on then instead Mary's vulnerability and being dependent on God. How could he get there? How does he lay aside fear? How does he lay aside his determination We all have areas in our life that are often blind spots, things that we cannot see, where we're convinced whatever that is is the right thing to do. But God pushes us towards faithfulness to him, and it can be scary. How did Joseph move from being determined to quietly divorcing Mary to being dependent on God? First, it starts with admitting that what you think is right may not be right. 
such a hard thing to do, to admit that what you think is right may not be right. People often do not like to admit that they're wrong. Uh, that never happens to me, but you all probably get in spirited debates, right? You guys, if you're married especially or part of a family, you get in these spirited debates often, an argument with someone, and you hit that place where you're explaining why you're right, and you hit that place where you realize mid-conversation that you're wrong. Yeah. Ever happened to you? In that moment, you can take one or two paths. You can embrace humility. You can admit that you're wrong. You hear their side. You understand. You want to be more understanding and more loving. Or you get to that spot where you're like, I'm going to win no matter what. Uh, when I do premarital counseling, I uh, work people through conflict often. Not that I'm like this expert at conflict or anything like that, but I work people through conflict. And one of the things I try to tell them is when you are in an argument and you want to win, it comes from pride. And God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so you know what happens in that argument? Not only is your spouse or the person you're arguing with against you, but so is God. And you're not going to win. And so Joseph was in a place that was a, kind of a, not a gray area exactly. The, the law gave him an out. But what he thought was right, applying that truth in this situation, which is wisdom, what he thought was right was not right in this situation. So in order to move from being determined to dependent, he'd have to admit that his understanding of what was righteous in this situation was actually at odds with what God was doing. It was at odds with what God was doing. And something had to break to be faithful to God, and God doesn't bend. This was not a be true to yourself and follow your heart moment. What was righteous was believing the testimony of Mary and Gabriel and caring for Mary and this new son. So I had to admit that what he thought was right was not actually right in the situation. Second, to be faithful to God, Joseph would have to embrace the hostility of the world. He'd have to embrace the hostility of the world. This could be open hostility, but also gossiping, shaming, slander. It'd be comments like, oh, so who's the father? The Holy Spirit, right? Are people just excluding him for community? Joseph losing business as a carpenter. To be faithful to God in this scenario would be at a real cost. And again, Joseph had to join himself to Mary's vulnerability. Either Mary be on her own, weak by herself, or Joseph could be with her by her side. To divorce her would be to maintain his power and security, but to marry her meant to enter into her vulnerability and to take it on himself. And men, most men, not all, do not like to think of themselves as being vulnerable. There's this air that we have to have our lives together. We have to have power. We have to display that we have things under control. But Joseph would be powerless to control how society treated him. He would not be able to have power in how he responded to the scandal of their marriage. The easier thing would be to walk away. The hard thing would be to remain and be faithful. Uh, as followers of Jesus, we have to deal with people who... Um, think negative thoughts about us. I'm not sure if you've had that experience before, but if you're a follower of Jesus, people don't always think kindly of you. And you may have had to experience that in real world situations, either through open hostility or out of ignorance to what we believe. And so the early church, you know, the first few hundred years of the church, they were under the Roman Empire, and people thought many negative things about the early church that were all rooted in ignorance. So for example, the early church was considered to be cannibals, incestuous, and uh, atheists. I mean, you knew that or not, but they, that's what people in the Roman Empire called the early Christians. 
And they were called cannibals because they would gather, they heard, to eat the body and drink the blood of somebody. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, been in the church for a while, you understand that to be communion. By the way, as a high school student walking into church for the first time, weirdest part of the service. We're all passing out juice and stuff, and I'm like, I've seen how this goes down. This is not safe. But the early church were labeled as being cannibals. They were labeled as being incestuous because they were marrying people they called brother and sister. Because the church is a family of faith. The church is, a, is not just an organization or an institution, though they are, it's also a family. And so the early church called each other brother and sister, and so they got labeled as being incestuous. They got labeled as being atheists because they didn't participate with the Roman gods. And so all these things were kind of rooted out of ignorance, someone not knowing what Christians actually believe, but they heard rumors. People today may assume that if you're a Christian, you're homophobic or a bigot or far right or that you hate women's rights or that you're on the wrong side of history, whatever it might be. And likely it's a label you get without being asked, why do you believe it? I've had people slander me before, people inside the church and outside the church, because it's something I've said that they had never came back and asked me, hey, what did you mean? And you've had those experiences, I'm sure. Once you open up about being a follower of Jesus, people assume the worst. And they don't ask you to explain or understand. People like to label others because gossip is fun. And so Joseph was exposing himself to public reproach, to public shame. He would need to depend on God to justify him, to vindicate him. He would need to live as if he really believed that what God thought was more important. And so we can't control people's judgments about us. We can't control people gossiping about us. The only thing we can control is if we're living out of faithfulness to God and if we approach people with a Colossians 4 attitude, Colossians 4, verse uh, 5 and 6 says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. That means we don't seek to return evil for evil. It means we don't gossip in return or slander in return. That doesn't win people towards Jesus. It means that when we're reviled, we respond with grace and we pray for opportunity to clarify. We pray for clarity. We will clearly answer people. And so to be dependent on God, we need to admit that we're sometimes actually wrong and we need to leave our hands, our reputation in God's hands. And so really, if you're gonna walk in faith and actually depend on God, that means you will be called to a place of weakness. You may have heard people speak negatively about um, religion in general, but Christianity in particular, saying that it's a crutch for the weak. Have you heard that before? Faith is a crutch for the weak. It's a crutch. Usually they bash Christians for being intellectually or emotionally weak, but honestly, I don't think that phrase goes far enough. I don't think that phrase goes far enough. Um, the gospel is more than a crutch. The good news of the gospel is actually that you're helpless. You're helpless. We're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to guard our reputations. We can't do enough to make our lives count. If we were strong by ourselves, the Son of God would never have to have taken on human flesh, never have to take on human nature to redeem and to save the lost. And so just as Joseph would have to embrace vulnerability and shame, God the Son entered vulnerability and weakness, entering the creation that he made. And he entered it as a newborn, dependent on the care of his parents. And he took on shame, dying on the cross. Philippians 2 tells us that's a shameful death. 
that it was a humbling thing, the death of a criminal. And he did this so because God only could fulfill the law. God the Son only could fulfill the law of Moses to be truly righteous, to be the perfect substitute for us on the cross, to pay for our sin. Only God could break the power of sin and death in the resurrection. And so Christianity is more than a crutch. It's a wheelchair. It's a double knee replacement. It's bionic legs in the future. It's something like that. To admit you're helpless. The first step to receiving God's grace and help is to admit that you need it. To have a dependent faith. That's how it begins. It begins with crying out, God, I need you. And so Joseph moves from being determined to dependent in that same manner by admitting that he was wrong, by taking on the risks that came with marrying Mary. How did Mr. Irrelevant's determination melt? How did he embrace faith? Well, the angel reveals a truth about what God was doing to him uniquely that helped him. Let's look back at verse 20. This is the second thing we see, the good news of God with us. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Gabriel gives Joseph a window into the identity of this child. Verse 20, Gabriel calls Joseph son of David. The Gospel of Matthew opens up with a genealogy, a family tree about uh, who this promised Savior is. And the book opens this way in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this family tree traces the family line of Abraham to Joseph. And at the center of the genealogy, the baby is a descendant of King David whom God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that God would give a descendant to a faithful son, an obedient king that would sit on this throne forever. That was being fulfilled in Jesus. So he highlights this is the son of David. Joseph would be the father of this boy, a fulfillment to God's promise to David. Though he's not the biological father, he's the adoptive father, and this child will have the full inheritance of the line of David passed to him by birth through Mary and by adoption through Joseph. The son's identity as king would pass on through Mary, but importantly through his father, Joseph. More than that, look at verse 21 again. Gabriel tells him this child shall be called Jesus. Jesus is a form of Joshua. It means Yahweh saves, God saves, and it fulfills Psalm 130, verse 8. God will redeem Israel from his sins. And then finally, the angel reveals something uniquely to Joseph and to no one else in the Christmas story in verse 22 and 23. The virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the book of Isaiah, God made a promise of his faithfulness to the king of Judah at the time named Ahaz. There were two enemy nations that were collaborating. Um, the kingdom of God was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, and uh, they were kind of this wayward, full of pagan kings that would just do horrific things. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the, the kingdom that God founded through David's sons, you know, Solomon, and through that righteous line and all that stuff that comes along in the story. And what happens is uh, Israel and Syria are conspiring against Judah. And Ahaz hears about this. And, and so God comes to him and tells him to ask for a sign, but Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. And, and so through Isaiah, God replied in Isaiah seven fourteen, 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now, the promise was that by the time this boy was old enough to know how to choose between good and evil, you know that moment with your kids where you tell them, hey, that's not right, and they look at you, and they do it anyways. They pause, they think, they reflect, and then they act out of their sinful hearts anyways. That moment, by the time the kid's that age, able to know what's good and right and what's wrong, God promises I will redeem you from these two enemy nations. And so what happens is the word virgin here is used often in that culture for a young woman. And what we see in scripture is that there are two fulfillments to this promise. There was a present fulfillment in Isaiah's day and a future fulfillment in the day of Jesus. And so Isaiah actually, chapter eight, go read that, chapter eight, verse uh, three through eight, tells us that this child that was promised was Isaiah's own child. The prophetess would give birth, and so God would actually uh, fulfill his promise to deliver them from these evil nations. But that gets carried forward into the not yet time to Jesus. It's fulfilled in Christ later on. This promise is fulfilled in a second way, and what Gabriel is telling Joseph is that this ancient prophecy had a fulfillment in a literal sense in the incarnation and virgin birth of Jesus, who would literally be God with us. Now, that's a lot of history, a lot of rich things in the Old Testament here, but let me help us understand it. At the time of the birth of Jesus, the name Emmanuel would have been taken metaphorically. You know, you say, well, God's with you. What you mean is like God's on your side. You mean like God's like helping you out in the situation. That's how they would have taken it as, as people in that present day. And what the angel is doing here is he's saying no. It's true in a literal way. God is with you. God is physically present. And so because of Isaiah seven fourteen and Gabriel's message to Joseph, one of the names of Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself would draw near to his people. God himself would be physically present. This is the theological idea of God's imminence. God is omnipresent, God's everywhere present, but God is near to his people. He's imminent. Take a step back and imagine Joseph receiving this dream. You're filled with fear, what gets Joseph to the risk of scandal and taking on vulnerability and moving from being determined to dependent, it is the promise that God was with him. It's the promise that God was with him. The promised child, Jesus, would be miraculous, conceived, born, and would be fully God, fully human. This child would be God drawing near to his people, and he would confront the two enemies they were facing, sin and death. It wouldn't be Israel and Syria, it'd be sin and death, which led to separation and estrangement from God, but God was drawing near to his people so they could draw near to him. And taking on humanity, Jesus never ceases to be God, but Philippians 2 tells that he emptied himself, not of his godness, but he, he muted his glory. We sing and hark the herald angel sings, mildly he lay his glory by. That's what that verse is, in the song is referring to that God drew near. Think about it this way, in the Hebrew scripture in the Old Testament, when people are in God's presence, what is it like? They're full of fear. They're face down. 
uh, were told when uh, God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai that people feared to touch the mountain. It was trembling and smoking and quaking. Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah's caught up in the throne room of God and it's filled with smoke and angels singing and everything. And he's, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. But in Jesus... God muted his glory as he drew near, and God took on human nature and assumed the form of a child, a newborn that could be picked up and held and cuddled. And obviously, Jesus didn't say a child, but notice how people reacted to being in his presence throughout the Gospels. Jesus expressed God's holiness and compassion, his love and justice, and those who were poor, those who were marginalized, those who were forgotten, those who were down upon the nobodies, people who were like his own parents, like Mary and Joseph, the nobodies in the world. Those people were uniquely drawn to Jesus. To see the difference there in the Old Testament, how people, when they were in God's presence versus people in the presence of God the Son, God with us, reacted to Jesus. They were typically empowered by being near Jesus. Something unique is happening in the incarnation that allows us to draw near to God. And that's behind the name Emmanuel. It tells us that God's desire is to be known and for us to draw near. And I think God revealed this truth uniquely to Joseph in this moment because it would give him courage to be faithful. The truth, you have to get this, the truth of theology is never removed from real world situations. There's always a practical aspect to everything we learn about God theologically and how we ought to live. God often will bring truth into our lives to give us courage to follow him and to be faithful. And the radical truth that God was with him in this promised son is what comforted him and gave him the ability to depend on God. What truth from scripture this past week has impacted your life in that way that's given you the ability to be faithful and to be dependent? Think about that. Think as you read the word, what is God speaking to me through his word right now to help me to be dependent and to be faithful to him? And so Joseph gets that first uh, good news piece there that, it's, uh, that this son is God with us, the good news of God with us. But the second thing he gets is more just implicit, more implied in the, the relationship he has, the good news of adoption, the good news of adoption. Look at verse 24, Matthew chapter 1. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. He named this son Jesus, as he was told. Joseph woke up from the dream. He obeyed God, took Mary as his wife. Joseph says, you're still the one I want to marry. He chose to love Mary and to be side by side with her, whatever may come. And her pregnancy was known at the time, meaning that likely Mary was walking down the aisle somewhere between three and six months pregnant. And we don't know what their ceremony was like, we don't know the situation there and everything, but he goes on to marry Mary and become the adoptive father of God the Son, Jesus. Joseph uniquely in all human history became the father of Emmanuel, the father of God with us, Jesus, through adoption. And in doing so, he models an aspect of God's character that God is the God who takes rebellious sinners like you and me, and when we place our faith in Jesus, we get a new identity, not as a forgiven sinner, but as son and daughter. 
There are two sides to this one coin that happens when you place your faith in Jesus, when you place your faith in the redeeming work of God. In that moment, in that instant, you are justified before God. You're forgiven and declared righteous and free of sin. No longer will sin's penalty be held against you. And in that same moment, you're adopted into God's family as son and daughter. John chapter one, verse 12 says, to all who received him, he gave them the right to be children of God. Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us for adoption as sons. Galatians 4.4 4 says because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, he says, but a son. And if a son, an heir to God. Why did God draw near in Jesus? Why is Jesus called Emmanuel, God with us? The entire purpose of Advent, the entire purpose of the arrival of Jesus, the entire purpose of the Christmas season, the incarnation, is so we get to experience a relationship with the God of the universe that's described in Scripture as adoption. Uh, my wife, Pamela, and I, we have, we have five kids. I don't know if I mentioned this last time. Um, usually when I mention that to people, especially people who aren't like church, they take a deep breath. Like, and I, I usually feel this compulsion to be like, you know, we have, we have three bio kids. We actually have adopted twice. So just so that I make them feel bad for a moment, you know. Um, <laughs> it's great. Because um, I usually get a little bit of that like judgment about like, why do you have five kids, you know. I'm like, what was my plan when I got married? I thought we'd have like two, you know, or maybe three and be like really edgy, you know. Uh, three and a golden retriever would be great. Um, um, my wife, Pamela, we've adopted twice. And uh, we adopted through foster care one time. We adopted once internationally. I'd love to talk to you about that if you have a heart for adoption and want to talk through some of the practicalities of that. It's, it's not easy, but it's such a rewarding experience. And we get to participate in what God describes for our salvation. We get to participate in his own heart. But you know what's crazy about adoption is um, you go through all the processes legally, and at the end of the day, you get a birth certificate for the child, Right? So you know whose names are on the birth certificate for our two adoptive kids? My name and my wife's name. And we're listed as biological parents. Like, we're not really biological parents. But in the eyes of the state, in the eyes of our family, in the eyes of everyone around us, we are the child's parent. Same thing happens. Same thing happens with God. Like, we are adopted into his family. His name is placed on us. It's amazing. It's an amazing aspect of faith, amazing aspect of the Christian story. And we focus so much on the legal aspect of things. Oh, you're forgiven and redeemed, you're justified. Yes, you're justified. You're made right in God's sight. But more than that, you're brought into a family. You're brought into a family. Jesus would legally be Joseph's son, a legal heir to the throne of David through Joseph's paternal line. And in doing so, God shows us a picture of the reality of what it's like to be God's child through faith. And so Joseph is anything but Mr. Irrelevant. He's anything but that. He gets to be in the game. He's part of the Christmas story. He gets the opportunity to model this aspect of the good news that you're not only forgiven of your sin when you put your faith in Jesus, but God drew near to make us sons and daughters. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Does this cause you once again to be moved to awe and wonder what kind of God would do this? Our God. He does not view you and I as people who merely exist to serve him. Though we do serve him, he views us as children in need of a home, people in need of a family. And so he arranges the whole story of his birth 
to model this for us. That God's heart is to welcome sinners home into a family. And so there's two ways to respond to this this morning. Look, maybe you're in a place this morning where you've resisted God for a long time. Maybe you've grown up even in the church and year after year you've heard the Christmas story. But you've not, as John chapter one says, received Jesus. Today's the day. Why not now? Why not in this moment? Why not confess that you've been determined to live your life in a way that you think is right? but you know in this moment that that was wrong. The only way to respond is to melt, to go from being determined to dependent, to confess, I've had a hard heart, and God, I need you. I'm unable to make myself righteous, and my sin needs to be forgiven. Tell him that you, even in this moment, desire to be a son or daughter. God is quick to forgive, He's Emmanuel, God with us for that purpose. The second way to respond is maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. This is a reminder that giving in to fear will keep you irrelevant in God's story. Joseph could have given to fear, could have walked away and be completely forgotten. Fear what may come Fear of hostility, of giving up control of our lives will keep us irrelevant in God's story. We could be so determined to protect our lives and do what we think is right while ignoring God and his commandments. And that keeps us from experiencing real change and making an impact in the lives of the people that God's placed around us. And so this Christmas season, allow the truth of God, allow the truth that God has expressed his love for us in Christ as Emmanuel, give you courage and assurance that you can depend on God. We pray for us. Let's ask for his help to do that because we are helpless people. We need him so much. God, help us to see the glory of who you are in this Christmas season. God, help us to be filled with awe and wonder. Help us, Lord, to be moved to worship. God, may the truth that you drew near in your son Jesus, you even draw further in, Lord, with the Holy Spirit being given to us, your very presence with us, Lord. May the truth that you are good in the way you bring us into the family through adoption, Lord, may those things give us courage, may those things give us faith to depend and trust and to walk in a way that is worthy of your calling. God, I pray for those here who uh, may have grown up hearing this story that have not yet believed, that have not yet confessed their need for you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would melt like Joseph's determination melts as he admits that you are God. And there are things that have happened that he has not seen that you, God, know that you're faithfully doing in our lives, Lord, in his life, our lives. And God, I pray for those here who may be experiencing fear, fear of public reproach, fear of hostility, fear of slander and gossip, Lord, fear of not being able to control the outcomes, Lord, fear of taking on vulnerability or weakness, Lord. I pray that you give us courage. We wouldn't just be assuming risk for risk's sake, Lord, but walking in faithfulness to you. 
God, would you do those things, Lord, for our good and for your glory. We pray that in your son's name. Amen.